Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest a lion, they tear my soul apart, renewing it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indigent every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violent descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks that is due to his righteousness, and I will sing his praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are just making our way through the book of Psalms, and so we've been in this book of the Bible uh, for the majority of the summer. And so we're just sort of um, marching through, and today we're just going to dive right in. As we have looked at the book of Psalms, Um, we've learned that there are certain categories for psalms. So um, just like there's categories for music, there's music, but there's also subcategories. You know, there's jazz, there's country, there's the hip-hops, if you will, or all that stuff, right? There's different categories of music, and there's also different categories of psalms. Um, There is psalms of thanksgiving, there's psalms of joy, And then there's also uh, what we learned, Psalms of Lament. And a few weeks ago, we worked with this definition for lament. Biblical lamenting is the act of intentionally directing our emotions to God in order to experience the grace of God. That's what lamenting is. Lamenting isn't just being sad. Lamenting isn't just being angry. Lamenting is what we do with our sadness and with our anger. And there's a purpose behind it that when we lament, that when we come to God with our emotions, that's when we get to experience the healing and the grace of God in light of that. And so today, um, I want to start with this. Does the name Daniel McChoney sound very familiar? Um, He's actually running for a seat for the Senate in Illinois. And um, Daniel lived a very interesting life. On his 17th birthday, he joined the Army National Guard. 
And he served with the guard for nine years as an infantryman and military policeman. And then uh, he was married and has a beautiful family. But on June 22nd, 2007, Daniel was involved in a hit-and-run accident while he was driving his motorcycle. And it ended him in his wheelchair for the rest of his life. Um, it was a horrible hit-and-run accident. And the person that was involved, uh, they, they never found and so just in an instant, uh, Daniel's life changed forever. Uh, he had portions of his life taken away from him, and he had suffering and things given to him that he did not ask for. Um, Daniel is actually a very outspoken Christian and a very mature believer in Christ. And in one interview, Daniel said these words, God has not healed my affliction, but he has taught me the power of lamenting to him about it. To our determinant, one of the most overlooked portions of scripture in modern day America are the Psalms of lament. However, he's repeatedly shown me that in lamenting, I grow my intense faith in God and that he can and will intervene in our time of need. The Psalms of Lament demonstrate just how deep our relationship with the Father really is. After all, we don't communicate our grief and mourning to strangers. We save that for those who we truly know and we truly love. Man, that's powerful. That's very powerful to see a man whose life was changed, a man who experienced great suffering. But he goes on to talk in the interview that when he was doing physical therapy and when he was waiting in doctor's offices and when he was up at night in intense pain, that what he found comfort in and what got him through in those moments in his life were reading the Psalms of Lament. And the reason why I share Daniel's story is because Psalm chapter 7 today is a Psalm of Lament. And it's also a very, very intense psalm. If you listened um, to the words that were being read to you, I mean, it talks about God like sharpening his sword. It talks about God getting his bow ready. Some of you bow hunters were like, that's my life verse now. That's fantastic. It talks about God being angry. I mean, there's a lot of intensity in the psalm. And in Psalm chapter 7, if you see in the beginning, we have a header. Um, now, these, these words aren't necessarily to say were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they made their way into the scriptures through Jewish history. And it tells us a little bit of context about this psalm. It tells us that David, number one, is the author. He's sort of the majority author of the psalms. But it says this, A shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, a shigion, that's a big word, right? But so is mayonnaise, and so we're going to learn some stuff today, okay? Um, shigion has sort of an interesting translation to it. We, we don't know necessarily what the direct translation is, but it's a liturgical term or a musical term expressing that this category of the psalm, this song, 
is highly emotional is what that means. And so just like we said, music has different categories, so do the psalms. And this psalm is a highly emotional psalm of lament. So again, what David is doing with his emotions and with his life situation is that he is going to God and that he is seeking out God's advice and getting a word from the Lord. And what particularly is the situation is that it's concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't know the particular instance in Scripture that David is talking about or what this header is talking about. So I can't tell you to go to like 1 Samuel you know, chapter 6 and we can see the background. But what we know through David's life and through the series of Psalms is that most scholars believe that this was written when David was king of Israel. But then there was this guy, King Saul. And, and he was actually king of Israel for a very long time, but he did things that were contrary to God's word. Um, he became highly insecure. I mean, he was riddled with anxiety and with fear and became this dictator. And then when God anointed David to be king, Saul actually tried to kill David with his bare hands. And there's all kinds of drama in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel about the backstory of it. What we do know is that a Benjaminite, Cush, probably was like Saul's right-hand man, okay? So think about it in sort of mafia terms, the Corleone family. Saul's sort of spun out of control, and he's got Danny DeVito out to take out David at any moment in his life. But what this Benjaminite, Cush, is doing is that he's going around and he's speaking about David. He's sowing discord all throughout Israel. And, and really the word that, that's happening is, is slander. That's what Cush is doing to David. Cush is going around and he is slandering David. And, and when you understand that as the context, you begin to read Psalm 7 in a very, very, very different way. Um, as I began this week to sort of just search the scriptures and look at this concept of slander, listen guys, I was very much taken back as to how much God talks about the issue and the topic of slander. I mean, just right out of the gate, Psalm 101.5 says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly I will destroy, says the Lord. <laughs> okay, that's just how we're starting the sermon today, right? I mean, this is intense stuff. And then when you continue to look, I mean, one of the Ten Commandments, God's top ten, Exodus twenty sixteen, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I mean, that's one of God's top ten commandments for his people. Did you know that the name Satan, the word Satan of God's great enemy, that word Satan has a derivative and literally means slanderer. So that's why in the Gospels, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says, you are sons of the devil, 
You are acting like your father, Satan, because the Pharisees were slandering Jesus. I mean, it's not a stretch to say, listen, it's not a stretch to say that slander is demonic. Slander is demonic. And if there's ever a category of sins, if you will, that have crept into the church, those of our words and what we speak, slander or gossip or anything like that, these are the terms that Christians somehow just think that they're not guilty of. But, but what is slander? I think this is a great definition. Slander is slaying a person with your words. That's what it is. And by the way, this is actually the definition of slander that your kids are learning in kids' side today, right? Because us adults, we need the deeper things of God, right? Slander is slaying a person with your words. That it is spreading false information or it is saying things with the goal in hopes that their reputation or that their heart would be hurt. That is what slander is. Listen, this is not just something that, that we are guilty of. This is also something, as a follower of Jesus Christ, um, that Jesus actually promises and says will happen to his followers. Jesus says, hey, get ready, um, because if you choose to follow me and be my disciple, the world will slander you. Well, I'll just let Jesus speak. In Matthew chapter 5, he says these words in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people insult you. You're just like, what? What is he saying? Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil of you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, let me clear the air and clear the expectations. If you choose to be my follower and surrender your life to me, and turn in faith and ask for forgiveness of your sins and put your faith and trust in me, one of the things that you can bank on is that the world and the enemy will speak evil against you. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever been on the receiving end of slander? Maybe, maybe you have a business and someone has just gone about and they were dead set on destroying your life and your income and your business. Or maybe you had given your life to Jesus Christ and had a conversation with a person. And you know what? They just didn't like that Jesus thing that was going on in your life. So what they did is they go around now to all of your friends and say, you know, Bill, man, Bill's changed. He's all holier than thou now. And now you're on the receiving end of slander. Nobody speaks about it more clearly and probably was on the receiving end of it more than the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians. They're very, very powerful. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. Anybody else just like wish that wasn't in there, right? When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. 
I've never seen that sign in Hobby Lobby. I've never seen, I've never seen like the little wood pallet sign that says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right? And it's $75 on a piece of wood, right? Just never seen it, but like there it is right there. Right up to this moment, I am writing this, listen, I'm writing this, Paul says, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. The Apostle Paul says, hey, listen, you better get ready for this because, listen, this is by far one of the most powerful tactics that the enemy can have on your life. And here, what we have in Psalm chapter 7 today, knowing the context of it and just looking at a very quick cursory understanding of what the scriptures say about slander, how do we respond? I mean, what do we do with this? For some of us, we're business owners, like we said, and literally your business depends upon word of mouth, on reviews, or this, that, and the other. Maybe you've had a business partner that's gone sideways or something. What are we supposed to do? How are we as Christians supposed to respond to this? Because listen, one thing is clear what we've seen through these verses. As Christians, we respond differently. Please, my whole sermon hinges on that sentence that we as followers of Jesus Christ and followers of the way, we do not respond like the world does. And if anything, what those verses just told us is this, that how we respond to being slandered is actually a witness to the surrounding world. That when people watch us being slandered, they sit back and they ask themselves, okay, if they're a follower of Jesus, if they're into this God thing, and if they read their Bible, how are they going to react to this? And depending upon how we respond, those scriptures insinuate that when we respond the way in which Jesus would have us respond, they are actually persuaded by the gospel, that they actually look at someone's life and go, wow, that person is obviously has a deeper motivation. They have put their trust. There is something different about them. I have to know what that is. So what's, what's really the big idea and the thesis underneath all of this? When I look at Psalm 7, just, just at a very 30,000 foot view, it's this. When you are spoken against, speak to God. I mean, just, just up front, very first and foremost, 30,000 foot view to put the jelly on the bottom shelf, that when you are spoken against, when you are a victim and on the receiving end of slander, you must speak to God. And, and I think when we look at the psalm, we're going to see sort of three quick things. We're going to learn to talk to God first, to turn your critics into coaches, and then to trust the judge, okay? So when we're spoken against, speak to God. The first thing is this. Um, talk to God first. Talk to God first. Listen, we've seen this week in and week out, constantly, over and over and over again. And when I was studying the psalm this week, I thought, gosh, I'm going to be telling them the same thing again. Like, go to God first. But then I got super convicted. You know why? Because obviously this is something that we need to do. 
And obviously this isn't something that we do first, but look what David does. Oh Lord, my God. When you look at the original language of the psalm, the very first word is Lord, Yahweh. The very first thing that David does when he finds out about Cush, when he finds out about what's happening and the slander and the devastation is David goes to God. And he's passionate. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Least like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rendering it into pieces with no one or none to deliver. I mean, that's powerful language. David is saying, look, God, I have to come to you. And in a way, when I look at this and read this, it's almost like David is coaching himself. It's almost like David is reminding himself, okay, the first thing that I have to do is I have to go to God because God is my refuge, God is my strength, and God will save me. David goes to God first. You know what's interesting, um, and I thought what would be fun for us is, is looking at what David doesn't do, right? So, so now you've just heard. Somebody comes and gives you this report and says, so-and-so is going around and saying this about you. Or so-and-so has just posted this Google review of your business. Like, can you imagine if David was around whenever Google was around? Like, Israel would not have gotten good Google reviews during this time, okay? This would have been a big deal. Like, and, and listen, can I just say something? I was highly, highly convicted thinking about this concept of slander in today's age of social media. I mean, in today's age of cancel culture and sharing uh, this meme or that on Facebook, like, can I just say this? Can I just say this? I don't care who the president is. I could give a rip about that. But you understand that when you say those things on social media and share those things, that you are committing the sin of slander? Guys, the world is watching us as believers. And may we live differently and may we be the light in a dark world. So what does David not do? The first thing is that he does, he doesn't get on Facebook and bash Cush, right? He doesn't, like, listen, in this day and age, it's so easy. It's so easy to get on social media, post the thing, and then get all these people to rally around you. That's right, sister. Amen, brother. I never go. I've never done, you know, blah, 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 blah. And what it is, is it's the tar and feather committee getting everybody together because misery loves company. David doesn't do that. The second thing that David doesn't do is this. David doesn't make a public spectacle of defending himself. Um, I thought it was very interesting this week seeing certain politicians come out and cause all kinds of spectacles saying this, that, or the other, claiming innocence and doing all of this. You know what's very interesting? What we're going to learn in just a minute is even when somebody is innocent and they're on the receiving end of slander, the Bible actually suggests and commands no response from you. 
no response. Exodus 14, 14. This would be a great life verse for some of us. The Lord will fight for you and the Lord will save you. All you need to be is silent. Translation, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth and trust the Lord. Because for some of us, the greatest act of faith is to not say anything but to trust God. And then the third thing that I see David not do is this. He doesn't gather people around him that will tell him what he wants to hear. The first thing that he does is he goes to God. He doesn't pick up the phone and call those people that are going to be his amen corner. I've shared this, but a number of years ago... um, I came home from work, and, and my wife said, hey, you know, this is going on, and was telling me about a situation, and she said, you know, I was so tempted. I was so tempted when I found out that information to call so-and-so because they've also had interaction with them, and I know that they would confirm what was going on and this, that, and the other, and it was such a temptation. So what I did is I called the person that I would be least likely to call And they kind of put me in my place, right? But listen, it's so tempting for us to gather the amen corner around us. These are things that I see David doesn't do. Listen, why is it so important? Why is it so important for us constantly to evaluate what we do first? Well, here's the sentence. Um, In times of crisis, where, who, or what you turn to first reveals what you love most. In times of crisis, in times of suffering, in times of heartache, being on the receiving end of slander, who, what, or where you turn to first is what you love most. That's why in recovery, people with addictions learn about triggers. They learn about what triggers them. I've shared stories about um, my older brother who's been very um, outspoken in his life and who's struggled with alcoholism for a large portion of his life. But he said, Jason, you know, every time that I get gas or any time I go grocery shop, before I go into the gas station or before I go into the grocery store, I have to make a conscious decision and tell myself I'm not going to buy alcohol. I'm not going to buy alcohol. And he said, especially when work starts to get crazy and things go haywire, I have to gather people around me. Because why? Because in times of stress and crisis, we try to cope. And so whether it's alcohol, whether it's social media, whether it's, I don't know what it is, but where we turn to first reveals what we love most. The second thing that I see David do is this, um, David turns his critics into coaches. Look at verses 3 through 5. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. We learned that that term Selah means to pause and to reflect. So that's something that we need to do with these verses. Isn't it incredible what David says here? I mean, is anybody else shocked by this? Are you guys holier than me? Because I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this at all. I'm trying to defend myself. I have a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not responding. I'm reacting. I'm doing all of that. And what David is saying is this. God, 
if any of this is true, if what Cush has said is true, then let these consequences happen. Then let this happen. What he says later on, he says in verse 8, look at your Bible. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, wait a second. Is David saying that he can earn his righteousness with God? No, no, no. We learned last week about hesed, about the very grace and mercy of God. What David is saying is, God, if any of this is true, then let these consequences happen. But if it's not true, then I need you to intervene upon my behalf. There's a lot of wisdom in this. Um, I've shared this story with you before, but a number of years ago, I read this book entitled The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. And uh, two of these people are New York Times writers. And what they did is they looked at the life of Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And they looked at how many years Billy did what he did and how little controversy surrounded that man. I mean, I mean, this is the end of an era. It's always something's coming out about somebody. Now, Billy did get involved in some controversies, but nothing like what we would ever see today. So what they did is they evaluated his life, the employees, and, and they broke it down into some principles. But one of the things that they saw is exactly that point comes from this book. What Billy would do is he would turn his critics into coaches. Now, here's what I mean. Anytime Billy did a crusade in any city, the writers of the papers of that city would always blast Billy. So what would happen is, is they would have a crusade and it would go for four or five nights, let's say in L.A. or New York or even St. Louis, Kansas City. And what Billy would do is the next day he would have one of the employees of the association go around and buy all of the local newspapers. And he would read every column that was written. Now, I mean, you have to have some thick skin to do this. And what he would do when he would read those columns and those columns would say, he's a manipulator. Whenever he gives the invitation, they play that soft music and people are emotional. And so one time when Billy read that review, they didn't sing Just As I Am uh, for an invitational the rest of the entire crusade. And that crusade, that single crusade, he saw more people come to Christ than any other crusade. What Billy did is he prayed over that criticism. And he said, God, if any of this is true... God, if there's any impure motivation that I have in my life, please take it out of my life. And every single time, Billy gained wisdom from that, turning critics into coaches. But listen, do you know what this requires? Guys, this requires a massive amount of humility. A massive amount of humility. I don't know about you, but I don't see a long line for the criticism line, right? I don't really see a long line of people going, you know what? Um, what I'm, what, what my goal in life is just to get a lot of people in my life that would just kind of speak into it and criticize it, okay? Because what I've learned about people who criticize a lot is that they actually don't create anything. They don't create anything. They just always criticize what other people have created. But that's a different sermon, okay? That's an entirely different sermon. But I love what Spurgeon said about humility. 
Humility is to make a right assessment of oneself. That's what humility is. And I think if there's anything when we look at the lives of great men and women of God, they always really knew deep down inside that they were just a sinner saved by grace. Billy knew that about his life. Elizabeth Elliot knew that about her life. All of these people knew that about their lives. But here's what's so difficult about that in these moments, and especially in David's life in Psalm 7. It hurts the most when it's somebody who's against you, when somebody who's against you. But please listen to me. Christians, Christians can receive, a humble person receives truth regardless of the one speaking it. Some of us really need to take that sentence to the bank, okay? Because some of us kind of sit high on our horse and we say, ah, you know, I'm not really going to sit down and have a conversation with them. I don't really want them to speak into my life uh, because blank. But is what they're saying true? Is there any nugget of truth in that at all? So listen, when you're spoken against, speak to God. And turn to God first. And then those people that are speaking against you, turn those critics into coaches. And then the last thing is this, and it is by far the thrust of the psalm. But it's to trust the judge. Put your trust in the judge. Look at this. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, oh, righteous God. I mean, we see multiple times in this psalm that God's referred to as the judge. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 11. Listen, if there's ever anything in the scriptures... And if there's anything that the early church, do you know how the early church had such an impact? Think about this, guys. We're talking maybe 120 people when Jesus was crucified. I mean, real core disciples. And then we see over a matter of decades. Think about this. We are in Popper Bluff, Missouri in 2021 talking about a man named Jesus Christ who lived over in the Middle East, who taught these things, who was crucified on a cross and three days later rose again. I mean, think about how fast this news spread. And one of the impacts in the way that this news spread was how Christians responded when they were persecuted and when they were slandered. We see all in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul encouraging believers, don't react, don't react. And in Romans chapter 12, we see it so clearly. The Apostle Paul says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. I mean, I just think we need to stop and give our whole life to just those few words, right? I mean, none of us are Iron Man in here, okay? We're not avenging ourselves. Here it is. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And what David is doing is David is saying, I have to call the judge in to intervene. Because you see, a lot of us are sitting in God's chair. A lot of us are trying to do God's job. And quite frankly, that's why you feel so much fear and so much anxiety and you're burdened with it and you're consumed with it every day because you are trying to control this situation by your own power. And at the end of the day, it is so much. It's too much for you. But listen, there is good news. And we say this all the time. At the end of the day, no one gets away with anything. And the early church had a prayer that they would pray. While in Ephesus, they were being fed to lions. And while under Nero's persecution, that he lit Christians on fire in his garden at night so he could walk through it, they would pray, Maranatha, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly, because they understood this. Jesus Christ came as a lamb once. The next time that he comes, he comes as the lion as the tribe of Judah. And his revelation says that his robe is dipped in blood, and on his thigh is written King of kings and Lord of lords, and from his mouth comes a double two-edged sword by which he judges the nations. Listen, there is the wrath of God. Because God is a loving Father. But listen, by the very definition of love, by the very definition of love, God's love by its very nature leads him to hate wickedness. Guys, we have to have this balance. We must understand this. And we see, look at verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation, anger, and wrath every day. People always ask when another tragedy happens and a hotel collapses or another tsunami hits or somebody walks into a public place with a firearm. Everybody, um, non-Christians and atheists, always ask the Christians, where is your God? Where is your God? And do you know what our response is? Our God is on His throne, storing up wrath on His day of judgment by which He will make everything right again. And that is where our hope is. Because a father who loves his kids hates wickedness. But what we see later on is this idea of repentance in the psalm. Look at verse 12. If a man does not repent, turn from his ways, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons. Now, some people will say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This doesn't seem like a very loving God who's like, what? he's like, is this God like a kid with a magnifying glass, just burning ants, holding a sharp sword? Like, man, I can't wait to get those people today. Well, number one, it doesn't say that he shoots his bow. Number two, it doesn't say that he uses his sword. And number three, what actually happens to the wicked? Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. And is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. 
You need to underline that in your Bible, that he falls into the hole that he has made. One of the greatest signs of God's judgment is giving people or a nation over to what they are desiring that is not him. That's why in Romans chapter 2 it says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, don't miss this. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you know what happens when somebody surrenders their life open to Christ? That through the power of the Holy Spirit, their heart and mind is opened to the mercy and kindness and patience of God. And they look at their life and they go, I deserved God's judgment so many years ago. But God, by his grace, kept pursuing me and kept pursuing me and has even kept me alive until now. But listen, some of us need to hear this sentence. Never confuse, never confuse God's patience with passivity. Because many of us think that we can continue, whether it be slander or any other sin in our life, that, well, nothing's happening now, so I can continue down this path. Dear friend, God commands everyone everywhere to repent, for today is the day of salvation. Do not mistake God's patience with passivity. Listen, Westside, we have here in Psalm 7 exactly how to respond. But in closing, think about this. If you've ever been on the receiving end of slander, one of the things that you're wanting to do is you're wanting to show your innocence. That what has been said is not true about me. Think about that. At the end of the day, There's only been one innocent man walk this earth. And do you know that we actually know how Jesus Christ responded when an illegal trial took place at night, when lies were spread about him? The Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, here it is, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Here it is. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled or slandered, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That is Psalm 7. He himself bore our sin. I love what Peter does for the motivation here. Peter says, Jesus was lied against. Jesus was slandered. But he entrusted himself to God. And immediately when we hear that, we argue. 
And we say, yeah, but how this is affecting this. And then look at what Peter uses for the motivation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Translation, when you feel like defending your innocence and responding and blasting that person or that situation, we are reminded, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who am I? But this innocent man, he absorbed my sin and my punishment when he was really the truly the innocent one. I pray today that God would grant us the faith to live a life in such a way that when people see that if we're the victim of being slandered or gossiped about, that we would entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father who loves and protects his kids. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today, and today we need faith. God, this is so difficult for some of us. Some of us are in this situation right now. The business is suffering, the family conflict, whatever the situation is. And God, I just pray that number one, we would calm our hearts and minds. Because at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters about us is the one who created the universe. And God, what you say about us is that we are your beloved, that we are your chosen, that we are your loved. So God, we don't need to defend ourselves in these moments and live in anxiety and fear, but rather today, right now, today, we are entrusting ourselves to you. Give us the power to release it and to let it go. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the truly innocent name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Westside, if you would stand to your feet, if you are a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, you can come and grab the elements of communion and go back to your seat to participate. the grace to forgive when we have been sinned against. Restore us, renew us again. Give us the meekness to heal. Give us the mercy to mend. Forgive us all our sins. As we ourselves forgive Amen Forgive us of all of our sin And give us the grace to forgive When we have been sinned against Restore us, renew us
us again Give us the meekness to heal Give us the mercy to mend Forgive us all our sins As we ourselves forgive Forgive us, forgive us of all of our sin, and give us the grace to forgive when we have been sinned against. Restore us, renew us again, and give us the meekness to heal. Give us the mercy to mend Forgive us all our sins As we ourselves forgive When we have been sinned against Restore us, renew us again Give us the meekness to heal Give us the mercy to mend Forgive us all our sins As we ourselves forgive Amen If you would, open up the top portion and take out the wafer. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night that He was to be betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you can partake. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing when we see this idea of you being the judge of all the earth, that if it wasn't for your grace and for your mercy, we could not stand in that judgment. But your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent out of your great kindness on our behalf, has withstood that for us. So as we partake of this body, may we be rest assured that we can have assurance that our sins are forgiven, that our past is erased, and that our future is written. Would you also open up the top portion of the cup? And likewise, 
he took the cup, and in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant that is poured out in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And you can partake. God, we thank you for your kindness and for your mercy and for your patience with us in our life. May we never take it for granted.